The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to financialsense.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. United Auto Workers Union has expanded its strike to two new locations. An additional 7,000 workers are being instructed to walk off the job starting today. Locations include Ford's Chicago Assembly Plant, along with GM's Lansing Delta Assembly Plant in Michigan. The union is asking automakers for significant pay increases, annual cost of living adjustments, and the shift to a four-day work week. Mortgage rates hitting their highest level in over 20 years. The 30-year fixed rate now sitting at 7.31%, causing both buyers and sellers to hold out for better circumstances. We also got pending home sales data today, and this is the data for August, down 7.1% just month over month. It was a lot worse than estimated. So now we are really starting to see, in more decided fashion, the interest rate increases pinch when it comes to the housing market specifically. Meta, the owner of Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, has been unveiling its plan to bring artificial intelligence into our daily routine. Chief Executive Mark Zuckerberg has been showing off what he calls the first mainstream mixed reality headset that merges virtual reality with the real world. The firm's also announced a team of AI chatbots with different personalities and their own areas of expertise. And it's revealed a new set of Ray-Ban smart glasses with AI built in that can answer your questions. It is a good thing for there to be a discussion about the debt. It's high, it's rising. Under the current laws, it will just continue to rise and is, we're on an unsustainable trajectory. That's, that's the terrible thing. The bad news about this debate is it's focused on the wrong part of the budget. It's focused on the annual appropriations to fund the government. The real issue is entitlement spending. We'll spend $80 trillion over the next 10 years if the CBO is right. And of that, $50 trillion will be entitlement spending. Only $20 trillion will be the things they're fighting about right now. So the real issue is how do you make Medicare and Social Security financially sustainable over the long term? That's what the debate has to be. That's what I want to hear the president talking about. And so far, his message has been, I'm not touching it. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. Well, it seemed almost unstoppable. At first, as the stock market bounced back, rising double digits in the first half of the year. But there were problems with the market's rally, as most of those gains were concentrated in just a handful of stocks. Seven stocks did well, but the remainder of 493 stocks did nothing or lost ground. We just finished the third quarter, and the market is starting to break down as the dramatic rise in interest rates are beginning to take their toll with the long bond now approaching 5%, something we haven't seen in over a decade. And short-term treasury bills are now over 5.5%. Washington's spending orgy is driving the deficits to record levels that will have to be financed, and there simply is not enough buying to support prices. Bond investors are facing another year of double-digit losses 
and higher interest rates are making the stock market less attractive as an investment. Hi, everyone. I'm Jim Poplava, and welcome to the Financial Sense News Hour. On today's program, Jim Welsh from Macro Tides will join me for an extended interview as we discuss the high probabilities of a recession next year and what that means for the stock market and why inflation isn't going away. Jim will also discuss, similar to the 1970s, why he feels we have entered into a long-term secular bear market that could last 10 to 15 years. Later on, Chris Poplava and Chris Sheridan will be here with another edition of Smart Macro. But first, let's find out the stories that moved the markets this week with Ryan Poplava. And with that, the trading month of September comes to an end, as well as the end of the third quarter. September was the worst month of 2023 for the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ, as investors' concerns shifted away from a hard landing relief this summer to rising oil prices, rising rates, and higher for longer. Let's talk about what's going on behind the scenes and then wrap up the week with a look at the economic indicators this week. The soft landing outlook is still the base case on Wall Street. Goldman Sachs three weeks ago cut its recession odds in the next 12 months down to just 15%, with the Atlanta Fed GDP Now model estimating real GDP growth of 4.9% in the third quarter. FactSet reported today that the estimated year-over-year earnings decline for the S&P 500 is expected to narrow to negative 0.1%, which is up from estimates on June 30th at a negative 0.4%. And how often do we see Wall Street beating those estimates? Most of the time. So we could see a positive turn in earnings estimates. According to FactSet, 116 of the S&P 500 companies have issued earnings guidance for the third quarter, a record number for FactSet. And of that number, 64% have issued negative earnings per share guidance. Some of the concerns facing investors are higher oil prices, rising long-term rates, the U.S. government staring down a shutdown, student loans payments set to resume October 1st, a recent pickup in headline inflation, China's recovery efforts slow to start, strikes expanding for the UAW, central bank policy staying higher for longer, and the lag effect from prior rate hikes that have yet to show up meaningfully in employment data. This week, stocks were oversold, and they staged a rally to end the week, month, and quarter. That rally started on Wednesday for no other apparent reason than really a technical bounce given the weakness in stocks over the month. Crude oil reached a high of $95 a barrel before settling the week at $90.78 in volatile trading. The 10-year Treasury yield reached a high of 4.68% following the jobless claims and revised second quarter GDP report Thursday before settling Friday at 4.57%. The drop in yields in oil prices possibly assisted in the stock rally, but Friday's PCE inflation report showing core price growth was a bit cooler than expected was the big driver. JP Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon early in the week told the Times of India Tuesday, that he is not sure the world is prepared for 7%. It wasn't a forecast, but a warning. And given the rates have been rising lately, it served to affect sentiment this week. Two FOMC voters shared their views with us this week on monetary policy, starting off with Chicago Fed President Goolsby, who said he believes the Fed has more to do to bring down inflation to the target level and Minneapolis Fed President Kashkari said he thinks another rate before year-end would likely be needed if the economy is stronger than expected. So basically, 
If you're following economic indicators, good is bad because the Fed will tighten and bad is bad because it puts concerns the Fed's early rates may be catching up. Doesn't leave a lot of room for success, does it? There was a long list of economic reports this week, starting off with more housing data on Tuesday. The July FHFA housing price index rose 0.8% in July, and the July S&P Case-Shiller home price index rose 0.1% in August. August new home sales were 675,000, which shows sales are still being impacted by high prices and high mortgage rates. Durable goods orders increased 0.2% and excluding aircraft orders were up a robust 0.9% following July's decline. The revised Q2 GDP estimate was unchanged at 2.1% with the deflator showing the lowest increase at 1.7% since the second quarter of 2020. Initial claims increased slightly to 204,000. Personal income rose 0.4% along with spending up the same. The key report that started the morning rally on Friday came from that PCE price index I mentioned, the Fed's preferred inflation measure. It showed a core increase of only 0.1%, which helped to bring long-term yields down at the end of the week from off their highest levels this year. The final reading for the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index dropped slightly from August to September at 68.1, and September's consumer confidence fell to 103 from a revised 108.7 previously. In the Consumer Confidence Report, consumers cited weak future business conditions, job availability, and income, which could translate into softer spending in the future. This week, the energy sector was up 1.2%, materials were up 0.2%, and consumer discretionary was flat, helped by Nike's earnings Friday. The worst performance sectors were the utilities down 6.9%, staples down 1.9%, financials down one5 real estate down 1.4%, all areas that are generally affected by rising rates. Given the weakness in September, which is typical seasonally speaking, we know October tends to be a volatile month on record. It's also a month known to be a bear killer as stocks have turned the tide in October bear markets 13 times since World War II, including last year. We'll just have to see what's around the corner, but I'm assuming a government shutdown starting next week would not be a good start. But that wraps up the week as oil prices and rates hit fresh highs and stocks stage a rally to end the week, month, and quarter. Up next, Jim Welsh, this week's guest technician. Minaj Pradhan is the founder of the independent research firm Talking Heads Macroeconomics based in London. He, along with Charles Goodart at the London School of Economics, wrote a very prescient and highly influential book titled The Great Demographic Reversal, Aging Societies, Waning Inequality, and an Inflation Revival. Now, Minaj, ever since your book was released in 2020, we have discussed your long-term forecast numerous times for why we are likely to see higher than average inflation in the years ahead. And clearly your book was very prescient. And that was a call that you were making just as we started to see a dramatic pickup in inflation. There's a number of things that you discuss that central policymakers and many others are clearly paying much more attention to. We even just spoke with Bill White, who was previously at the BIS and also at the OECD, talking about how central bankers essentially claimed victory for the 30 to 40 years of disinflation that we saw, thinking that it was because of their efforts. But he asserted that it may have actually have been 
largely due to the influence of China and demographics, really giving a nod to your book and a lot of what you discuss. Well, first, thanks very much for having me here again. It's a, it's a fantastic time to discuss this topic because we are again at one more of these critical junctures as far as inflation is concerned, as far as central banking is concerned. So the problem is that the level of prices compared to the pandemic and the level of wages compared to the pandemic still have some adjusting to do. So for a large share of the labor market, real wages are still not where you would want them to be. And if that's the case and the labor market remains tight, you will allow the labor force to have a lot more bargaining power. Again, a structural issue, which we believe in our book, will persist for the next 20 or 30 years. And if you give them that bargaining power, there's very little chance that they will not try to reclaim that with higher nominal wages. But the point is, inflation will start rising again. So the first mistake that markets are thinking is they believe that a soft landing with tight labor markets is consistent with low and persistently low inflation. I don't think that's possible. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. At Financial Sense Wealth Management, our firm specializes in assisting companies by managing cash balances with short-term treasuries and high-quality corporate bonds that may provide higher interest rates. This approach not only helps to manage your corporate cash balances with competitive yields, but also to help reduce taxes through the use of treasury securities, which are exempt from state and local income taxes. Give us a call today at 888-486-3939 to find out how we can assist you to earn higher interest rates with no bank risk and no state and local income taxes. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Last week, the Fed met. Coming out of that meeting, the Fed anticipates a stronger economy in 2024, so no recession. They also mentioned the possibility of raising rates even further, and there will be fewer rate cuts next year. I guess that problem of sticky inflation is still around. Where are we going to go with this? Joining us from Macro Tides is Jim Welsh. Jim, let's start with recession idea because the Fed came out and said they expect, you know, the economy to remain strong in 2024. You've got an in-depth look at that. And that data doesn't jive with what the Fed's forecasting. Uh, no. And I think, you know, what's happened here, Jim, is it isn't just the Federal Reserve. It's Wall Street. And sometimes we have to get into the psychology of how markets function to gain a better understanding. So last year, after two negative quarters in the first and second quarter of last year, Wall Street jumped on the bandwagon of we're in a recession. And that was despite the first six months of uh, job growth last year was averaging over 350,000 new jobs every single month. So the point being is that Wall Street was wrong last summer to jump on the recession bandwagon. And of course, they assumed that the economy then would weaken in the first part of this year when the regional bank crisis blew up in March. Uh, again, a lot of people thought, oh, here we go. And what we've seen is data improve in the second quarter relative to expectations. And so now we have economists broadly saying, ah, we're not going to have a recession. And so to your question, I find it ironic because, as you know, we've done interviews now uh, for an extended period of time. I didn't think 
there would be a recession last year, nor in the first half of this year. But I thought we would start to see slowing take place in the third quarter that would then accelerate in the fourth quarter and lead us toward a recession. So the problem for the Fed is they're driving the car, looking through the rearview mirror at data that is typically three to six months old. And obviously, that's very, very challenging for anybody to do, especially when you get to a curve in the road. And I think we're on the cusp of seeing a curve in the road and the economy. We're going to see things slow down in coming months for a whole host of reasons. Well, I know, Jim, just looking at the charts for the first time in a while, all the 10 sectors in the S&P, most of them are heading down, breaking down, including technology. So as you look at the charts of the S&P, technically, what are they telling you? Well, in July, I uh, late July, I thought the S&P was approaching an important high and explained based on valuations, you know, things were pretty well stretched. Uh, sentiment was very bullish. You know, we had just had a couple months of better than expected economic data. Everyone had bought into the, oh, we don't have to worry about a recession story. Uh, and then based on various technical uh, measurements, I thought the S&P was at an important high when it got up towards 4,600. And my expectation was that we would see a decline of at least 5 to 7%, which has unfolded. And now, you know, as you and I are talking, uh, the, the S&P has dropped, uh, I think, almost 8% from interday high to low. And the market is oversold. Sentiment, which was pretty ebullient back in July, has become pretty cautious because of the nature of the decline. Uh, you know, so I think near term, we're likely to see a rebound. But, you know, my take all along, Jim, has been that at some point in time, we would get convincing evidence that the economy was slowing materially. And I think the message that the Fed has really been delivering for months in terms of higher for longer, Wall Street just chose to ignore that. I mean, if you look at with the projections at the June meeting as well, the Fed was projecting that they were going to hold the funds rate high for an extended period of time. Um, but I think where the uh, rubber meets the road is, if I'm correct, and we see the economy slow materially over the next six months, the Fed is not going to come to the rescue right away. And the main thing is, not inflation has been coming down, as we all know. The CPI was at 9%, got down to 3 It's rebounded a touch. But my point has been, Jim, that the Fed is pleased with seeing inflation coming down. But their outlook covers the next you know, two to four years, not the next six months. And so for the Fed's perspective, in order to have real confidence that inflation is going to come down more next year, but importantly, stay down, the Fed would need to see GDP growth, which has been above 2%, slow under 2% for an extended period of time. And the reason why, conceptually, is the long-term growth potential of the economy, according to the Congressional Budget Office, the Federal Reserve, and a lot of other private forecasts, is around 2%. So if the Fed's trying to create slack in the overall economy, they need to see uh, growth slow to under 2%. And it can't be just for one quarter. It's got to be for an extended quarter. And typically, Jim, as you well know, when the economy slows down, 
things start to happen. Overleveraged companies uh, and so forth, uh, you know, they see a revenue drop and they have too much debt. And all of a sudden you see a spike in uh, defaults. The commercial real estate story isn't done. In the first half of next year, there's going to be more problem with office buildings and commercial real estate that's going to come to bear as companies try to refinance debt and they're not able to do that. So to me, that's point number one. And secondly, unemployment has been under 4%, which is near a 50-year low. So the Fed needs and wants to see the unemployment rate rise enough so that there's enough slack in the economy so that wage growth continues to moderate as economic growth slows. And those two things combined is what will give the Fed confidence that, all right, when we do start to lower rates at some point in time down the road and the economy begins to recover, we will have created enough slack in the overall economy and the labor market so that we won't see inflation rebound quickly in the early stages of that recovery. As you know, Chair Powell and other members of the FOMC are saying, we want to avoid the mistakes of the 1970s. One of those mistakes was pushing too hard on the brakes, you know, continuing to push the Fed funds rate up, causing a recession in the 1970s that then forced them to reverse policy and cut rates. And the net result was inflation dropped for a while, but you know didn't really stay down and then subsequently rebounded. So to me, that's the framework I think the Fed is operating with. Wall Street continues to be focused almost solely on uh, inflation. And Powell last week was asked a question in his press conference, Jim, why are you talking about keeping the funds rate up without any improvement in the inflation? And Powell's answer was, it's all about the strong growth, the growth. So, you know, this is something I've been writing about for quite a while, that the Fed really needs to see GDP slow below 2% for an extended period of time. And to me, that nugget out of that press conference was maybe the most important thing that Powell said, because it reaffirmed, if you will, the framework that I just described. Well, let's talk about something else you've got in your newsletter. In the U.S. economy is driven by credit at all levels, corporate, individual, and even government. And one of the things that we have seen that have preceded a recession in the past is a tightening of lending standards. And you've got a chart in your newsletter on that. Let's let's address this issue. No, I'm glad you brought it up, Jim. Uh, Chair Powell, at the very beginning, March of 2022, when the Fed just started to raise rates, he talked about the prospect for a soft landing. And he gave a speech. And he referenced three instances where soft landing was indeed achieved, even though the Fed had increased the federal funds rate you know, fairly significantly, 1965, um, 1994, or, uh, probably 95, and then 84. And the point that that chart shows is in those three instances, uh, lending standards were not increased significantly. And the reason why that's so important is you know, large companies can tap the bond market and raise money in terms of bond sales and so forth. And if they have a good credit rating, it's relatively easy and inexpensive for them to do that. Small companies are really dependent on banking uh, to get their loans. And so when credit standards are tightened, uh, what that means is not only are small businesses going to face the brunt of whatever the rate increases that the Fed has engineered. And a lot of the small business loans are tied to the prime rate. 
So the Fed funds rate goes up five and a quarter. The prime rate just went up five and a quarter. And then when things get a little dicey uh, in terms of the outlook for the economy, Jim, uh, banks will then increase the spread. In other words, you might have been paying 1% above prime for your loan. All of a sudden, now it's going to be 2%. And then lastly, uh, if you had a, a million dollar line of credit with your bank, uh, the bank may or may not extend that million dollar credit when it comes due. So late last year, we saw a big ramp up in lending standards. And what that means is that as uh, small businesses come up that 12 month mark late this quarter and in the fourth quarter, they're going to see a big significant ramp up in their cost of credit. And as that expense increases, obviously it consumes more of cash flow. They're going to be forced to look for other places to uh, cut costs. And obviously one of the places is, uh, you know, employment, business investment, um, advertising. So to me, that's another crunch that is coming. And that has been my outlook, as you well know, as we got into the fourth quarter, the increase in lending standards on small businesses would really begin to bite. One last thing, jobs are a lagging indicator, always, every business cycle. Uh, and the reason being is companies will look to cut costs other places. So what we've seen already, like as a precondition to the unemployment rate going up, employers have cut back hours worked significantly. Overtime has been slashed. Temporary help uh, has been reduced where they've let go of temporary workers. So these are all the things that happen as businesses start to, okay, how can I cut some of my labor costs? But they have a core group of employees that they want to hang on to. So it isn't until their business is really impacted by the economic slowing that they're then forced to, hey, I got to let some people go. And what we know over the last two years, employers struggled mightily to find good workers. And so that normal inclination, I think, is going to be magnified in this cycle. Uh, so to, to me, those who are looking uh, for the job market to weaken as a real signal that the economy is you know, headed towards a recession, it's always a late signal. Uh, it happens typically as the recession is already beginning or has begun historically. So to me, that's what's coming, Jim. Over the next six months, we're going to continue to see monthly job numbers trend lower. Uh, and then I think we're going to see outright job losses at, by the time we get into the first quarter of next year. I want to move on to something that is spooking the market in something I haven't seen almost in two decades. On the day you and I are doing this, which is a Thursday, we've got the 30-year treasury at almost four and three quarters. It's almost on its way to 5%. You got 10-year notes at over 4.6, which is affecting mortgage rates. Uh, let's talk about that because I'm looking at TLT and bond investors are getting their heads handed to them just like they did last year. Yeah. You know, again, from a technical standpoint, uh, I have been expecting yields to continue to work their way higher. And this past Monday's weekly technical review, Jim, one of the charts I showed was an overlay of treasury yields and the dollar index. And over the last two years, the correlation between the trend of the dollar and treasury yields has been really tight. And there are a lot of different reasons for that. Um, but my take was that we're not going to see rates come down until we see the dollar weaken. 
And as you, you know, last October, the dollar was trading up almost to 115 um, and then had a fairly significant decline. And back last October, I was looking for the dollar to drop down towards about 105, which it did. And my expectation was that if the dollar declined, as expected, we would see treasury yields come down, the gold would rally, the stock market would rally. So there's been this negative correlation between the dollar strength causing yields to go up, hurting the stock market, hurting gold. And so to me, uh, one of the things I think investors have to focus on, more so than they have probably in a long time, is the dollar. And so technically, the dollar is very overbought. I think we're very close to a high in the dollar. So there should be a pullback. Um, but I think longer term, after a pullback, I think the dollar is going to have another move higher. And so what that implies is, yeah, we may get a brief respite for treasury yields to come down. Uh, the stock market will bounce a bit. But I, I think if I'm right about the dollar, after a pullback, rebounding more, that's going to, again, we'll see the same relationships, I think, kick back in. So you're right. You know, it's one other aspect, you know, the housing market. Everybody, oh, look at the... Uh, you know, no one can sell because they've got more, you know, I think 90% of the mortgage or 85% of the mortgages are under 5%. Wow, isn't that great? And it definitely is sustaining home prices. We saw the home prices tick higher again in the last report. Uh, but I think the problem that's building, Jim, is the unaffordability of housing is at a 40-year low. And so you have this demand pool, which has been destroyed. So if I'm right, and we see the unemployment rate, tick higher as we get into the next year, uh, I think you're going to see housing prices come down because I think a lot of homeowners, some who have been sitting on the fence in terms of maybe selling their house, uh, gee, my price just keeps going up. I'm not going to sell. But if we see unemployment start to tick up, I, I just think that that's going to bring more supply uh, from the sidelines. And when housing prices begin to fall, and I am, I guess, fairly confident given the gap between where prices are and the level of affordability, I think that brings even more supply out. So I, I think housing prices are going to surprise people next year. Uh, I think housing prices are going to decline. And, you know, that is a negative for the overall economy because I don't think we're going to see mortgage rates come down enough uh, by the end of next year to really, you know, provide relief in terms of affordability for housing. And related to that dollar, I want to point out an issue that's probably helping drive up interest rates is we've seen oil prices get up to 93. We think it's going to 100. But if you think it's bad here, and especially in California, where we have some of the highest gasoline, we're over six already. But but Jim, think of somebody in Europe or elsewhere that has to buy oil in dollars. If your currency is down 10% against the dollar, and you have to buy oil. So it's not just the fact that oil's at 93. Your currency is weaker, so you're paying even more. And there's a scramble for dollars. And so they've been divesting of treasuries, which is one of the factors. Last year, we saw a big plunge. So how much of that is contributing to what we're seeing in the rise in yields, number one? And number two, related to that, let's talk about the elephant in the room that nobody's talking about. We just added a trillion dollars of debt in 90 days. I think it took almost the same amount to get to 32 trillion. Now we're at 33. 
and we're projecting we'll be over 34 by the end of the year. So, Jim, we're adding almost a trillion dollars of debt every 90 days. How much of a factor is that going to weigh in on the Fed when we start paying more in interest than we pay on defense? Uh, it's going to put the Fed really in the crosshairs on a number of, of levels. You know, there's a lot you just packed into that question, Jim. Um, I think the selling of treasuries by foreign central banks is playing a role. It's kind of like when you see big moves, more often than not, it's just not one reason that causes a big move. And we've seen a fairly significant increase in treasury yields since mid-July. Uh, and oh, by the way, that's when the dollar bottomed. So the correlation aspect is is truly at work there. So I, I just think there's a lot of things coming into play, which is causing this big increase, Jim. Obviously, the Fed's statement, higher for longer, the economic data you know, playing a role, oil prices moving up, economists are upping their forecast for uh, you know, the consumer price index uh, over the next six to 12 months. So there's like a lot of things coming together with uh, the pinch foreign uh, entities in terms of the currency translation on top of the increase in oil prices. So it's a lot of things happening all at once. But again, it underscores, I think, why one of the keys is going to remain the dollar. Because despite if they're selling uh, treasuries, then what they're doing is also then selling dollars to bring that revenue back home. And that normally would be supportive of other currencies. So you have that dynamic, and yet it's not slowing the ascent in the dollar index. So again, I look at what's going on with the dollar. It's kind of like, okay, there's something going on here that we may not fully know until the benefit of hindsight. But I do think the dollar is one of the keys to the market. Um, and foreigners are selling treasuries, which is hurting. You know, it's kind of like a, a bad uh, uh, negative loop. Okay, they're selling treasuries, which is driving up interest rates, which is attracting other money to maybe buy the dollar, you know. So that that the dollar, I think, is the key. And to your point, energy prices are part of the overall equation of both not just inflation in the U.S., but it's also even more inflationary in other countries that are highly dependent on oil uh, and the price that they're paying. And it also will affect monetary policy in some of those other countries. I want to keep on this subject because they're working on a budget and it looks like there's disagreement there. So there's a possibility of a shutdown. But I looked at the budget, Jim, and the Biden administration is proposing almost a $7 trillion uh, spending for next year, increase of almost 400 to 500 billion. I think they're throwing in 550 billion for uh, environmental green transition. But how much of this spending has also served to hold the economy up much longer than anticipated, given the fact that we're almost heading to a 6% Fed funds rate? Yep. The spending is helping. It's adding to GDP, overall demand, plus one of the programs that President Biden got passed last year is also causing an increase because of the tax credits embedded in that program. Uh, are causing uh, businesses to ramp up their investment. So you have kind of a twofold thing happening. You have the increase in government spending, but those provisions are also causing an increase in private spending to you know, so they can benefit from some of the tax credits. So 
no doubt those that is also uh, counterproductive relative to what the Fed is trying to do. The Fed has been trying to curb demand and the, and the fiscal side is both creating more demand by the spending and, you know, the tax credits. You know, the bigger point, you know, we've talked about this a number of different times. I, I think the stock market is headed towards a secular bear market that will last at least 10 to 15 years. And one of the issues that is going to have to be dealt with is the level of federal spending. And in order to contain that, the hard choices, and if you will, some of the negatives that that would imply for GDP growth are going to be dealt with. So, you know, to your point, that is one of the drivers that I think is setting up and we're usher in a really, it's just one of many factors. And I have a special report uh, called the, you know, the coming secular bear market. If any of the listeners want, just send me an email. The information is on, will be posted on your website. So a lot of things are coming together, Jim, that have been building for decades. The lack of energy investment over the last five to eight years. Well, what do you think is going to happen to energy prices over the next decade? We're going to see higher energy prices on balance. Well, that's going to make it tougher for inflation to come down. So there's so many things that I think are coming to a head. And as you put the kind of the nail on the head of it is the government spending is almost out of control. And the extraordinary factor is that it's not in the middle of a pandemic. It's not in the middle of a recession. It's happening when GDP growth is above 2%. And it's obviously aiding and abetting that. But historically, fiscal spending has been used as a counterweight to recession. Now we're just goosing the goose because of you know priorities that the Biden administration has kind of set. And I think it's going to create more problems than it solves. Well, let's bring in something political because we are now in an election cycle. And I, I'm sure the Biden administration would not want to go into next November. The economy's in a recession, which is highly likely. Unemployment is going up and we're still dealing with inflation. So what is that going to do to the Fed? So the Fed is saying, oh, maybe we're going to we were going to cut interest rates four times. Now we're only anticipating two times next year. What do we do if we actually do go into recession? So I have multiple questions here. One, if they're spending this kind of money in a growing economy, what the hell are they going to do when we're in a recession and unemployment's rising? So that's question number one. And question number two, politically, what is this going to do when we're heading closer to November next year? We've got a weak economy, rising unemployment, and we're still dealing with inflation and high energy prices. That's not a good scenario if you want to get reelected. No, it really isn't. I mean, what it raises the specter of the deficit will go from about $2 trillion this year uh, in the government's year ends September 30th uh, to three trillion. Is it four trillion, depending on the depth of recession? So we're on a trajectory that is unsustainable. The majority of Americans are oblivious to any of this, uh, unfortunately. Uh, and so it, it's a, a huge problem longer term. Politically, for President Biden, um, it's uh, you know, like the worst case scenario. But the problem I think we face, Jim, in terms of the coming election 
there's two main problems. My greatest fear is that no matter who wins the election next November, uh, the losing side is going to doubt the results. And that applies maybe more so for, you know, Republicans because of, pres- you know, former President Trump's viewpoint and the, how, you know, he's behaved since 2020. But I think Democrats will be the same way. Secondly, it won't matter, Jim. I mean, for the hardcore Democrats, uh, they're going to vote Joe Biden no matter what. Uh, just like there's a, you know, a, a nucleus of Republicans that will vote if Trump is the nominee. And unless something changes, that's the choice we are going to have. Personally, it depresses me that this is the best we potentially have to offer uh, Trump and Biden. Uh, it's kind of like, you got to be kidding me. So uh, I, I think that's the other underlying problem is that you have a, a group of people in both the Republican and Democratic Party that they don't care about the bigger picture or anything else. They're going to vote according to party line, which means the independents will decide the election. And so I think those people, the independents, which are there are more registered independents than there are either Democrats or Republicans, will determine the next election if it's Biden and Trump. And to that extent, the state of the overall economy, I think, would make (laughs) some of the independents not want to vote for Biden. But I think the animosity or just the, uh, you know, they really, really don't. A lot of people just don't like Trump. And so I think there's a lot of independents that would vote for Biden and hold their nose. And so if by chance um you know trump won somehow biden will win the popular vote i mean his plurality was seven million in the last election and it came totally from new york and california so if by chance you know trump and biden are the candidates and somehow trump won but he won't win the popular vote the democrats will lose their minds you know and if uh, if it's Trump and Biden, uh, there's going to be a group and Biden wins. There's going to be a bunch of Republicans that will lose their minds. Another election was stolen. So I, you know, to me, I'm holding my breath because I think that the election next year could be critical in terms of the path of this country going forward the next five and 10 years. We, we went through a pandemic. Over a million people di- died. More people died in the pandemic than all the wars combined, including the Civil War, where 500,000 soldiers died. And the point being is it didn't bring us together. It divided this country. And so to me, this election has the potential of you know making a bad situation worse. Um, and um, you know that makes me pretty apprehensive. And what do you think uh, the pressure will be by the administration on the Fed, because obviously, you know, people vote their pocketbooks. And if next next November we're in a recession and unemployment's rising, we're dealing with inflation, uh, oil prices, gasoline prices here in California are $7. Who knows what they'll be elsewhere? But that's not good. I, I can't help but believe there's going to be some kind of pressure on the Fed and even Wall Street. Wall Street doesn't want a recession or a bear market. Yep. No, Jim, you're 100% right. The pressure on the Fed will be enormous. So what the Fed will need 
is cover. Um, you know, you can keep talking about getting inflation to 2% and all the rest of that when the economy is growing north of 2%. But in the environment you just described, the Fed will need the cover of seeing unemployment rise. And so they can easily, you know, they lowered their projection from 4.4, 4.5% next year to 4.1. So the Fed has gone through this internal debate, Jim, where they believe that we can have lower unemployment relative to history without inflationary pressures. That's why they brought it. They have a thing called Nehru, and it's a model that tries to guesstimate what is the balance uh, point. Like GDP is around 2%. Well, Nehru was at about 4.445. They think Powell, again, in his press conference, made a comment. We think the natural rate has come down for unemployment, and they that's why they lowered it to 4.1%. So my point being is the framework is set. If we see the economy slow materially next year, all of a sudden the unemployment rate is above 4.1, which is what the Fed projected. It then can, can complain that, hey, we've created enough slack in the labor market because the unemployment rate's at 4.2, 4.3. It'll likely go higher in coming months. So therefore, you know, we've accomplished what we set out. We got inflation down. And unemployment's moving higher. The economy is growing less than 2%. So I think, again, to the extent that the Fed has cover, that in a sense insulates them uh, to some extent from appearing to be bowing to political pressure, you know, that framework would, uh, and they've already set that framework in place based on the projections at the September meeting, um, you know, that they can, and from their perspective, legitimately say, hey, we we got inflation down, the unemployment is above our target, we think we've created enough slack, it warrants cutting rates. So I think the Fed would do that. Well, given these circumstances, how would you be playing this as an investor? I know we're heavily invested in treasuries and short-term corporates. And Jim, for the first time in two decades, we're getting Yields from five and a half to seven percent. I mean, I haven't seen that in almost twenty years. Yeah, yeah. Well, here's a couple of things I would avoid. I would avoid high yield bonds, junk bonds at this stage of the game because if I'm right and we see a material slowing in the economy, Jim, we're going to see default rates go up. And I think what we've seen over the last year is the relative strength of high yield and junk bonds has been positive relative to treasury bonds. So in other words, treasury bonds have lost more ground than those other two instruments. I think that'll do an about face so that treasuries will show greater relative strength um, than those other instruments. So to me, that's one of the things, A, to avoid. Um, in terms of the equity market, I still believe there's a realistic uh, probability that if I'm right about a recession, we're going to see the stock market drop, the S&P drop to 3,500 and potentially 3,200 because earnings estimates have been climbing. You know, in other words, Wall Street believes that earnings bottomed in the second quarter of this year and will continue to trend up over the next year and a half by 10 to 20 percent. Well, if we get a recession, those earnings got to get cut. And historically, as you know, Jim, when you go into recessions, earnings get cut the multiple, in other words, instead of paying 20 times every dollar of earnings, uh, investors all of a sudden are only willing to pay 17, 16, 15. So you get that compression both from earnings and the PE ratio 
coming down. That's how the S&P can go down to 3,500 or 3,200 if we have a recession. So I, I think for most investors, um, and you touched on it, you're in short-term instruments. The Fed has told us they're not going to be cutting them for a while. So, you know, that yield is going to be sustained for a period of three to six months at a minimum. Uh, and so I, I think having more in cash and waiting for what I believe will be the washout when it becomes evident that we're going to head toward a recession. And here's one thing. Psychology is such a huge role in the markets. Um, if we see enough weakening in the data, all of a sudden we'll be reading articles. Oh, well, maybe we are going to have a recession after all. And so people will respond to that prospect as opposed to whether or not we actually do have a recession. Just the fact that that fear will increase will elicit selling. And I think that's coming. Um, so, you know, to me that I would be very defensive. And I, you know, I, once we hit that high in July, my the pattern that I presented in the July or maybe it was August macro ties, Jim, was that the decline from 4,800 down to 3,500 was the first part of a bigger bear market. The rally from 3,500 to 4,600 was kind of like the intermission. You know, I remember we used to have movies that would be like three and four hours long and they'd have an intermission in the middle. And to me, that's what that rebound was built on the idea that, hey, we're not going to have a recession after all. Well, guess what happens if it does look like we're going to have a recession? We'll see another leg lower. So that's the technical framework that I think um, has a high probability of being played out. And, you know, I, I just can't imagine. I mean, you don't raise the funds rate 525 basis points without an economic issue and issues developing the lag time is always there and this time there were other buffers in place excess savings um you know 8.7 percent increase in social security payments lowest unemployment rate in 50 years wage growth was pretty good um you know the government spending that has taken place over the last 12 18 months all these things have combined, I think, to give a false sense of security to investors, Jim. So I, I think, yeah, near term, we're going to get a bounce. The market's oversold. But I do believe as we get into next year, we'll see the S&P go down to the lower targets I've discussed. Well, it's interesting because you're talking about a long-term secular bear market. And Jim, this harkens back to me to the 70s where we saw this period of you know what the Fed would do then they would tighten, then they would loosen. But we had rising oil prices. We went from three or $4 a barrel to 40. Uh, gold went from 35 to 800. Silver went from, I don't know, 50 cents all the way to 50. So you take a look at that. You know What I think is going to surprise a lot of investors, you take a look at the last decade, you made money easily. You just went in an index fund. You didn't have to think about anything. The markets went up each year. Well, you got just the reverse. When money comes out of the market, it comes out of these index funds. What got hit hardest last year? The big cap stocks within the index. So you saw Amazon go down 45%. You saw Microsoft. I think investors have no clue of how this is going to affect them this decade. Unfortunately, I agree, Jim. And that's why I wrote that piece, the coming secular bear market, as kind of a wake-up call 
because again, what you cited was a window of time from 1966 to 1982, where the Dow went from basically a thousand down to six sixty, up to a thousand, uh, down to five seventy four, up to a thousand, down to you know in the seven hundreds before 1982 bottom took place and took it up. Now let's step back. We talked about debt, the the amount of debt that we have is way more than what uh, the government was carrying during the 1970s. So I think that that secular bear market, as awful as it was for investors who were using buy and hold, uh, as opposed to a tactical approach, that was a bad 16-year period. I think the coming secular bear market has the potential of being worse, either in terms of length of time or depth. In other words, the you know the worst it got to in the sixty six eighty two was down about forty percent. Well, um, what if it's down fifty or sixty percent? Uh, so uh, again, I think most investors are just unprepared. The whole financial framework that Wall Street and you know financial advisors have implemented, and again, understandably, because for most of the last decade and many decades going back to 1932, buy and hold has been rewarded because we've been in on balance, these big upswings. So most investors uh, and the structure that's in place in terms of how people are managing their money or financial advisors are managing money uh, could be severely impacted if anything close occurs that I think, and I think you share those concerns approaches. And so to me, it, it means that a different skill set will need to be employed to deal with uh, that coming environment, just like the skill set needed to deal with the 1966 to 82 window of time. You needed a tactical structure. Most people are clueless in terms of even what that means. And sadly, most financial advisors are not that equipped either. You know, it's just I'm going to do diversification. Well, in a secular bear market, you're going to have diversified losses and lousy returns. I'm sorry. Go back to 1966 to 82. And, you know, again, I think the problems we're facing this time around are more significant than what the country was dealing with in 1966 to 1982. Couldn't agree more. Well, listen, Jim, as we close, if our listeners would like to follow the great work you do at Macro Tides, tell them how they could do so. Well, check out your website because we posted something uh, as uh, adjacent to this conversation, macrotides.com, or send me an email, Jim Welsh Macro, which is going to show up on your website. And I'll send you some special reports if you want the secular bear market report. Just include that in your email in addition to the other things that I'm offering. So again, as always, Jim, I love having these opportunities to talk, uh, you know, bigger picture as well as, you know, kind of like, okay, let's bring it down to the next three to six months. Uh, I, I think what you're doing is providing a lot of great information in all the conversations that you have. And I'm glad that you have, you know, such a loyal following because you've basically earned it by providing quality context. So again, I appreciate the opportunity to have these conversations with you. And I'd highly recommend you get Jim's secular bear market because folks, you have no idea what's coming this decade. We're going to see things. And, you know, Jim, I always hearken back to what we saw from 1966 to 1982. 
you know, they say history doesn't repeat, but it often rhymes. And it looks like a lot of rhyming ahead of us. We'll end up, <laughs> we'll end on that, Jim. All the best to you. Thank you so much. You bet. Bye-bye. Stay well. Hi, I'm Jim Poplava. I started Financial Sense in 1985 to give clients a boutique, personal investment experience that's hard to get at a large company. For three decades, my company has been helping families build, manage, and protect their wealth through tailored financial planning and investment management. If you are looking to make financial sense of a complex world, give our office a call at 888-486-3939 to speak with one of our advisors today and let us help you plan your future. Joining us on the show today is award-winning investigative journalist Guillaume Petron. He's the author of the must-read book, The Rare Metals War. And today we're going to discuss his latest book, which is titled The Dark Cloud, The Hidden Costs of the Digital World. When I finished my first book, The Rare Metals War, I was uh, mentioning a study saying that in the next 30 years, so until 2050, the humankind will consume more metals and minerals than everything that has been consumed and extracted from the ground for the last 70,000 years. And the green world, because we need so much metals and minerals for green technology, is partly responsible for such a figure. And at the very same time, the words dematerialization, virtualization, I'm going to put my paycheck in the cloud, are popping up everywhere in our everyday vocabulary. And I found like there was kind of a paradox between the reality that we're going to consume even more resources in the future and these words claiming that we're going to dematerialize everything we do. And I went to see my editor and I said, why don't we do an investigation about this paradox of dematerialization? And this is how it started. And I wondered, how am I going to explain that everything that we do in uh, the digital world has an impact. And I thought, well, what happens if I send an email or a like to someone who's sitting next to me in uh, the metro, in the bus? There is a one meter distance between me and this person. But will my data, my email, literally travel from my phone to this phone, which is one meter away? And actually, this is not what's going to happen because the uh, data, this email, will travel all around the world, pass through 4G antennas, servers gathered in data centers, submarine cables, maybe satellites. And the real distance between two phones, even if they are one meter away from each other, is actually several thousands of kilometers because this is actually the trail of an email. And the real distance is, is what I'm just mentioning right now. And this is such a paradox which nobody's aware of. And so I took the pretext of sending an email to my neighbor as a way to investigate on what's very material in the physical world. And I traveled for one year for an investigation around the world on the trail of an email. This investigation took me to mines because everything that is virtual stems from a scar in the ground. Uh, we need considerable amounts, volumes of various metals, whether it's copper, lithium, cobalt, by the way, the very same metals which are necessary for making the green technologies possible. You talk about how in your book in the 1960s, a phone took about 10 raw materials. In the 1990s, phone took about 19 different raw materials. Today, today's cell phones take about 50. And 
uh, of course, we've talked about a number of those different um, raw materials, critical raw materials, of which are very hard to come by or require large amounts of earth uh, to be strip mined in order to acquire these metals, uh, unlike technologies we saw in the past. One of them you talk about is a very interesting story where you went to China. So tell us a little bit about your investigation and what you saw when it came to the use of graphite and the mining of graphite, which is obviously extremely important. You wouldn't have a connected life, Chris, without graphite. Uh, graphite is a mineral which is necessary for the battery of your phone. And 70% of the graphite on Earth is being extracted in China, and more precisely in the north of China, in a province whose name is Heilongjiang. If you get there, you see the way people work. The working conditions are probably closer to what they used to be in our Western countries back in the 60s or in the 50s than uh, in 2023. And it's hard to film over there. It's hard to bring back some information over there because we're in China because this is a country which doesn't welcome journalists. Uh, but uh, what I could see, uh, you know, uh, the reality of how we mine graphite for making our virtual lives possible is quite shocking, and that was surprising. And we need to understand, Chris, that, um, as you said, a phone is made of many metals, uh, which are uh, sometimes called rare because they're very much diluted in the Earth's crust, but they have physical and chemical astounding properties. But if you want to make an iPhone, which maybe will weigh like, what, 150 grams, actually you need more than 1,000 more minerals, uh, more materials uh, to extract from the ground and to use in the various refining process, including water, than the final weight of the product, which means that you need 183 kilograms of raw materials during all the life cycle of the product in order to make a 150 grams phone. So the real weight of your phone is more like closer to 200 kilograms, 183 to be precise. And this kind of ratio, uh, it's extremely high. And you can make such a ratio for every product in your life, a jean, a shoe, a pen, but you can make that for electric products, which are the most complicated things we've ever manufactured. And so it tells you that the more you want to go virtual by using such products, the more actually you need materials and the more the ratio will be high. So that brings me to the conclusion that, well, the more you want to go virtual, the more it is material, which is a complete paradox we didn't even think about. And we don't see this because we are not being talked about this because the iPhone is a beautiful object. How can you believe that such a beautiful object as an iPhone can be dirty at the same time? We don't think about it this way. And we don't think about it also because, as you mentioned, the infrastructure is invisible. We don't see it. The data centers are very mundane infrastructures. There is no, uh, there is no name on it. There is no, uh, there is no brand on it. Nobody knows that it's uh, Facebook or uh, Amazon infrastructures. Sometimes the name, the legal name in the books of the infrastructures of the data center is being changed so that you don't legally, officially link. Meta and Facebook to this specific uh, data center. So it's a way to to make you, I mean, it's a way for you to see Meta and Facebook everywhere in the virtual world, but to never touch and grasp such a reality in the physical world. And so we end up not talking about it and uh, we should be aware of this anytime soon because that's going to be a huge issue if we keep ignoring that. 
Can you tell us about just the amount of energy consumption that's required to create a microchip? You need 16,000 times more materials for producing a ship than the final weight of the ship itself. So if a ship is two grams, in fact, you may need up to 32 kilograms of materials in order to produce a ship, which is the highest MIPS, material input per service unit, ever known of human history. Which tells us, once again, this very reality is that the more you want to go virtual, the more you need to get materials. That tells you how much virtualization is a myth. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. That concludes our weekend edition of the Financial Sense News Hour. To speak with our financial planning and wealth management team, give us a call at 888-486-3939 or go to financialsense.com and click where it says contact us. If you aren't already a subscriber to our weekday podcast and would like to listen to more of our content where we regularly interview book authors, industry experts, and strategists from around the globe, go to Financial Sense and hit the subscribe button. On behalf of Financial Sense NewsHour and the Financial Sense Wealth Management Team, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any company. Companies mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour. Be advised that you invest at your own risk.